Let us pray. Father, in this season of Lent, even as we have sung, we now pray that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, that you would bring us to that place of full consecration to you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. And um, it's been a wonderful and busy weekend here at All Saints Church. I'll share some more about that a little later. But as you're well aware by now, today is the second Sunday in Lent. And I'm, it's also the chain, time change with Daylight Savings. And I'm so glad to see all of you here. We'll see who wanders in in about a half hour. Continuing today in our focus on our gospel readings from St. Luke's gospel. Last Sunday in Luke 4, we learned of God's sustaining grace and power to us in temptation. We also read and heard of how to unmask the lure and the lies of Satan when he comes to tempt us, remembering that Satan always oversells and he always promises that which isn't within his power to give. Today we're looking at Luke 13 verses 31 through 35 which teach us, which teach us about what obedience to, to the will of God looks like. So I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with scripture on them and turn to Luke chapter 13. We did be, to view this brief encounter verses 31 through 35 here in today's gospel reading in its full context. So we need to back up a little earlier in chapter 13, where we find Jesus teaching in parables. He teaches in the parable of the barren fig tree, the mustard seed and leavened. And we have also his teaching on the narrow door. Here in Luke 13, we also see Jesus engaging in ministries of deliverance, healing the woman who had suffered from a disabling spirit for 18 years. And because Jesus did this, because he healed this woman on the Sabbath, it leads to a confrontation with the ruler of the synagogue, which we read about in verses 14 through 16 of Luke 13, which I want to read to you. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger to lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus' presence and his kingdom ministry was unsettling to many in the region of Galilee where all of this takes place. And we also need to remember for context that the region of Galilee was under the direct rule of Herod. Speaking of Herod, as the scene unfolds in these verses, we read that some of the Pharisees warned Jesus to go elsewhere to another region because Herod wanted to kill him. It's unclear and most New Testament scholars concur about this, it's unclear whether this group of Pharisees was actually warning Jesus out of genuine concern or if they were looking for an expedient way to get him out of the region without the use of force or violence. We have to remember that there were some individual Pharisees 
who are portrayed positively in Scripture. Nicodemus in John 3 and John 19 is an example of this. But regardless of the motive of this specific group of Pharisees in Galilee, Jesus was having none of it. Because he was demonstrating a steady obedience in one direction. And that is my first point today, a steady obedience in one direction. And for Jesus, this did not start in this moment. If we back up a little bit further to Luke 9 and the lead up to the transfiguration, Jesus said this to his disciples. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In the events preceding our reading today in Luke 13, 22, we read this, speaking of Jesus. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus was not going to be deterred by Herod. He was not going to be cowered by the threat of death. His mission was Jerusalem, and he set his face toward that city in steady obedience to the will of God the Father. And all along the way, as he set his face toward Jerusalem, he continues his ministry of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing the sick, and casting out demons. He will indeed get to Jerusalem but only at the time which is in accord with the will of the Father. Joseph Fitzmaier in his commentary on this passage in Luke says this, he, meaning Jesus, will go on teaching and freeing human beings from evil until he reaches his goal or destiny. His ministry has no political connotations, and he will continue not out of fear of Herod, a political authority, but because he must, because he is subject to another authority. Now clearly Jesus' obedience will lead to suffering. So how does Jesus' fate in coming to Jerusalem relate to us, relate to you and me, and to our own steady, consistent obedience to God's will? How do we in Christ's likeness also live out a steady obedience in one direction? I think for the answer, we need to jump forward. So jump forward with me, if you will, to Luke 14, verses 27 through 30, excuse me, 27 through 28, where we read these words of Jesus. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? It's easy for us in our 21st century context to miss the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. As I've mentioned in sermons in the past, to speak of the cross or to speak of crucifixion was something that was considered in that day coarse speech. It wasn't something that was discussed in polite company. And the imagery Jesus gives here is shocking because he's talking about death. Certain death and nothing less. Because when people saw a person take up his cross, they knew that that person was on a one-way trip to die. They weren't coming back. 
God calls us, brothers and sisters, you and me, if we are fully to live as disciples of Jesus, God calls us to die. God calls us to death. Death to self, death to our wills, death to our desires. And in exchange for this, God gives us the life of his kingdom. He gives us this in exchange for a life of steady obedience, where we fix our eyes upon Jesus, walking in the will of God. And obedience, we must remember, may very well lead to suffering. We talked about this last week as we looked at Jesus in the wilderness and this time of temptation that he went through for 40 days and the physical deprivation that he went through at that time as well. And yet we saw very clearly in last week's reading that it was the Spirit of God who led Jesus into the wilderness. It was the Spirit of God who compelled him to go into the wilderness and he suffered and encountered adversity there while he very much was walking clearly and fully in the will of his heavenly father. Just because we walk through hardship, just because we experience adversity, does not mean that we aren't walking in the will of God. As a matter of fact, it may very well mean that we are walking in the will of God. And Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, to lay down our wills and submit ourselves to him and to God's gracious will. Back on Ash Wednesday for the two early services at 6.30 and 8 a.m., I read a reflection from Oswald Chambers, or part of a reflection, entitled The Relinquished Life. And I want to share a little bit of that with you this morning because it very much relates to this theme of dying to self. No one is ever united with Jesus Christ until he is willing to relinquish not sin only, but his whole way of looking at things. To be born from above of the Spirit of God means that we must let go before we lay hold. And in the first stages, it is the relinquishing of all pretense. What our Lord wants us to present to him is not goodness, nor honesty, nor endeavor, but real solid sin. That is all he can take from us. And what does he give us in exchange for our sin? Real, solid righteousness. But we must relinquish all pretense of being anything, all claim of being worthy of God's consideration. Then the Spirit of God will show us what further there is to relinquish. There will have to be the relinquishing of my claim to my right to myself in every phase. Am I willing to relinquish my hold on all I possess, my hold on my affections and on everything? And to be identified with the death of Jesus Christ? There is always a sharp, painful disillusionment to go, th before, go through before we do relinquish. When re one really sees himself as the Lord sees him, it is not the abominable sins of the flesh that shock him, but the awful nature of the pride of his own heart against Jesus Christ. When he sees himself in the light of the Lord, the shame and the horror and the desperate conviction come home. If you are up against the question of relinquishing, go through the crisis, relinquish all, and God will make you fit for all he requires of you. The imperative need spiritually is to sign the death warrant of the disposition of sin, to turn all emotional impressions and intellectual beliefs 
into a moral verdict against the disposition of sin. In other words, my claim to my right to myself. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He does not say, I have determined to imitate Jesus Christ, or I will endeavor to follow him, but I have been identified with him in his death. When I come to such a moral decision and act upon it, then all that Christ wrought for me on the cross is wrought in me. The free committal of myself to God gives the Holy Spirit the chance to impart to me the holiness of Jesus Christ. This season about, of Lent is about asking God to cleanse our hearts, to search even those dark shadows and corners of our hearts where there may be some residual of our lives that we have not yielded and surrendered to God. And the question is posed to us in this season, even in the words of Oswald Chambers, are our lives truly relinquished to Christ? If we are Christ's, if we share in his mission, if we are by God's grace and power walking in a steady obedience in one direction, then our faces by God's grace and power will be set to walking in steady obedience in one direction, set in steady obedience to do God's will no matter the cost. God calls us. God is calling us to follow our Lord's example. Jesus fixed his eyes upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the goal. He knew he was going there. and He knew what was going to happen when he reached that destination. But he went in obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus was intent upon doing the Father's will and accomplishing his mission. Steady movement toward Jerusalem. For you and me, this really ties in with this theme I've touched on so much in recent weeks. As we fix our eyes upon Jesus, as we walk in a steady walk in a single direction, fixed upon the eyes of the Lord, fixing our eyes upon the Lord, God calls us to serve him only, to serve the Lord only. And as we do that, all the things of this world that try to hold us will fall to the ground. They'll fall to the side. The last two verses of our reading this morning focus on Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. As a prophet Messiah who has come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, Jesus dying in Jerusalem is in a long line of martyrs whose lives and witness pointed to his coming, pointed to the day of his earthly ministry. In Stephen's speech to the council before his stoning in Acts 7, he drives home this tragic and historic truth. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Jerusalem is the city where so many of God's prophets were slain and God's messengers were stoned. 
as the heart or religious center of the Jewish nation. The response of Jerusalem really reflects the heart of the wider people and nation in general. Now, God's heart for them is clear. Despite in this context, their ongoing and generally systemic rejection of God, even as his Old Testament people, God's heart is still to care for them. Look at the second portion of verse 34. How often when I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, and you were not willing. God's will for Old Testament Israel, represented by Jerusalem, is to care for, to nurture and protect them. And the imagery of a bird here is profound. This imagery of God gathering Israel under his wings. And repeatedly, time and time again, God sent his prophets to gather them. He sent his messengers to bring them back to the safety of his nests. Psalm 91 verse 4, which was one of our readings last Sunday, says this, He shall defend you under his wings, and you shall be safe under his feather. The only thing which kept them from knowing the care of their God was in general, there were exceptions, but they did not wish for him to care for them. Whoa, what a tragedy. They essentially stiff-armed God. Jesus acknowledges this painful situation where he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. They missed God's blessing. Most of them missed God's salvation. They're a redeemer in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the son of God, their redeemer in flesh and blood, stood there right before their very eyes. And because of their choices and continued disobedience, they found themselves spiritually desolate and exposed. And tragically, Jesus points out to them that they will not see him until saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in this context, that is not so much a reference to the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday that we'll celebrate in a few weeks, as it is to his second coming in judgment where all of his glory is revealed. And at that moment, it will be too late. So what's the message here for you and me? Don't stiff arm God. Don't stiff arm God. And it connects with the first point today of steady obedience in one direction. Because God loves us. God desires to gather and protect us under his wings. Do you understand that? Do we understand that in our heart of hearts? And in this call of the season of Lent, these 40 days to set aside the things of the world and ask God to clean even the darkest corners of our hearts, it's so that we can flee to refuge and protection under his wings. He calls us in this season to invite him to come in and break down any barriers in our lives, in the life of this church, to knowing his loving protection, to invite God into those dark places in our lives, not stiff arm him and try to keep him out. 
And he calls us to die to self, to live more fully to him by his grace and power, serving the Lord only, serving him alone, serving him in steady, lasting obedience, knowing that he is our heavenly father, that we are his children, and that there is strength and protection and shelter and healing under his wings. I close with a quote by the late Reverend J.I. Packer. I should say the late great Reverend J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Let us pray. Father, help us in this moment to more than more fully than ever to understand that you are our Father and you call us to take refuge under the shadow of your wings. Lord, give us grace to die to self, to die to sin, to die to our desires, our wants, our preferences. And as we die to those things in exchange to take up the life of Christ, the cruciform, the cross-formed life, and to follow him, walking, Lord, in steady obedience in one direction with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.